Good morning, all you brave ones. You came out on a day where the high is supposed to be in the 40s. What country is this? What state is this? Wow. I I just so want to stay in that worship time. It's actually hard to transition from that, so let this be a transition. I just got back from Oahu, and I saw something I've not seen before, and that was a worship hula. It was so beautiful. We were at Honolulu Christian Church, and the worship team there wrote their own beautiful worship song in Hawaiian, and for us mainlanders put the words up in English, but three young women got up in front and did this wonderful hula with motions, just in perfect sync with the words. And I asked them, I would love to show it to you. So I asked them if I could get a, a video recording of it. And we'll see what happens. They're going to try to send me one. It was something brand new, something they had just, in fact, the three gals, I talked to them afterwards, they had just learned it. They'd only practiced a few times, but it looked like they'd been doing it for a long time. So it was just powered by the Holy Spirit, and what a sweet experience that was. Ah, So today, this is the, the last section of Romans leading up to this beautiful pinnacle of of chapter 8. Chapter 8 is like the treasure chest of, of the book. It's just so important. It's crucially important. Today is like, have you ever gone on a stiff hike and you're almost at the summit And you got that last little stretch to go. That's sometimes the hardest part of the hike. There's also an interesting expression. One theologian describes chapters five through eight of the book of Romans as this masterful symphony. But like any symphony, this one has four movements. Some can have more. But anyway, in the third movement, you get the tension, the buildup to the climactic resolution. And we're at that third movement here in seven. So if you read this chapter and you kind of went, wait a minute, I think I need to read that again. And then you read it again and you said, wait a minute, I think I need to read this chapter again. I'm with you. I did the same thing, okay? And part of the issue is that you have to hear some difficult things before you can hear the really the relief, the great things that are coming. Now, one of the confusing things is that we forget that we come to the text with all this background knowledge. We have read the New Testament we have read the stories of Jesus' teaching. We have read, we've read the Sermon on the Mount. 
And what does he express in the Sermon on the Mount? He lets them know how critically they've misunderstood the point of the law. Okay, so these are people who haven't, he's writing to people who don't know that. In fact, Paul himself wasn't there to hear the Sermon on the Mount. He's learning from Jesus himself and from, obviously, his interaction with the disciples who walked with Jesus. So realize that as you wonder why why Paul, Paul is taking so long and so many words to try to explain his points, he's dealing with an audience that's coming from a place without having had all that support that you and I have had for our whole Christian lives. So some of the things that we get hung up on here, we forget that these people couldn't have known in advance. Why did, you know, so let me start, let me back up for a bit, because a large part of this chapter goes back to, or I mean, this section that I'm teaching on actually goes back to last week's lesson, some key parts that come just before verse seven. So this is important. He says, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Now here's the key word, words, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So we have now been changed from trying to please God through our obedience to the law. We are now trying, looking forward to bearing fruit that pleases God. Now, the question that comes up for these people is the same kind of question that the, remember the, the ruler who, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he's like, you know, he called Jesus good, and Jesus said, hey, no one's good but God. And he didn't pursue that line of questioning. He just went right to the next question. And what was his question? Same one that comes out of our human nature. Okay, what do I need to do? What can I do to be saved? And what did Jesus respond he talked about the law, just testing, you know, testing his heart to see where he's come from. Oh, yeah, I've been, I've been keeping the law. He thought he had been keeping the law, didn't he? And then Jesus said, sell everything, give it to the poor. And he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait just a minute. The whole point that Jesus was making there is you you don't understand your attachment to things and your your idea of salvation is all about doing 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 going through the list now we can forgive a person raised in Judaism for thinking that way that's unfortunately how they understood the law that they could somehow please god by doing, doing everything on the list. But none of us can do the first thing on the list. We can't 
We just can't in our own strength. And that's been the whole point that Paul has been reiterating through this book. You cannot be justified before God by what you do. In fact, his point to the rich young ruler wasn't that he honestly expected the guy to go out, sell everything he had, and follow Jesus. He knew the man's heart, and he knew where his attachments were. And so that's what he was trying to pinpoint when he spoke to him. It's like, where is your attachment? Do you think you can please God by your actions? Anyway, that's that's kind of the prelude to what, what Paul is getting at here, because there's a very key point that would be so easy to for the people to miss now that they realize they aren't part of the law. In fact, they, they get the idea because of what Paul says, that he's condemning the law, that the law is bad. In fact, for some of them, that's a relief. For some of them, that's a huge offense because that's what they've been depending on. So he is now going to walk through this pathway of pointing out that the law isn't the problem any more than the laws of our land are the problem when we violate them. We're the problem. We're the ones that have the problem. The law isn't bad. So he had to protect people from thinking that somehow he was discrediting, disgracing, dissing the law. That's not what he was doing. He was showing the importance of the law to do something for us that we need to have done. And that will come up as, as, we, as we go through this chapter. So what he does then is to say, no, the law is good. The law is not the problem, but this is what's the problem. And then he gives a personal example of the problem. And that comes from his discussion of his problem with covetousness. I love the fact that his whole point, if you miss or if you catch anything else from this chapter, the main point he's making is that when we seek to bear fruit to God, which is to become Christ-like, to serve God with our whole being, we cannot, cannot do it by willpower, by following rules, by trying harder, by going through certain paces. And at the same time, I'm saying that, I want you to know that all those things you do to grow yourself spiritually are not bad things. They're good things. But those aren't the things that save you. It's not going through having your devotions every day, praying at certain times, coming to worship service, doing good to others. All those things are good. We're called to do those things. But out of what source? Out of For what reason? For what motivation? Is it to be good and please God? Or is it to express our love to God? To grow in Christ-likeness. If we're like Christ, we'll do what Christ did. We'll think like he thought. 
will say. In fact, that's a big issue here is that Paul acknowledges that when we come to Christ, when we come to the God who wrote the law, we love the goodness that he expresses. We love the goodness. He says, in my mind, I know the law is good. My mind agrees. Don't, you, don't we all agree that it's good to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Don't we all know immediately that it's good to, res- to, to respect those who are our family, our, our parents, whether they're great parents or not great parents? We know it's good to respect them. We know it's good not to take the Lord's name in vain. We know it's good to speak truth and never bear false witness against someone. We know that it's good to be faithful and pure in our relationships. We know it's good to be respectful of others' property and not to take anything away from them. We know what's good and just Paul also knew that it was good not to covet. It was good to be content. What's the good part? We know that it's good to be content with not only what we have, but with the people in our lives. We recognize the goodness. But if we try, what Paul is saying here is if we try to manufacture that goodness in our strength, in our, that's why we were singing, Lord, you are my strength. Don't even try to do this in your own strength. You cannot. But he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to say, you, 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 look at you. You didn't do, he says, okay, I'm going to be the one to show you what it's like when you know something's wrong and you know the right thing to do, but as soon as it gets in your head. It's, it's there. He tried to not covet. He got to that part of the law where it's really obvious that it's not external behavior. This is internal stuff. The stuff that Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. Paul encounters it. He goes through the law and he knows he didn't kill anybody. He knows, you know, he followed a lot of those. But when it came to this one about coveting, he said, here's, here's my personal example. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The other times that I, I got to teach, the last time I, I was able to be with you, it was like, here's what Abraham discovered and what David discovered. We could call this lesson what Paul discovered. What Paul discovered was that as a Christian, even knowing what's right, and not only knowing what's right, but desiring what's right, and by the way, if you don't, if someone doesn't have a desire for goodness, for love, for purity, for all these things that are part of God's law, for generosity, for selflessness, if someone doesn't even have a desire for those things, there's something missing. <laughs> they, they probably don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. But if that desire is there and you can see that desire, and you know it's the hunger of their heart. They are in Christ, even if their behavior doesn't quite match it yet. So 
In fact, I love this is this is a perfect example of what Pastor Tim is always talking about, that there's a part of our salvation that's already here. And there's a part of it that's not yet. So the part that's already here is what we call justification. That's what Paul's been talking about in the early chapters. You're not justified by anything you do. But here's the problem. The Christians he was talking to didn't understand that the next step in their salvation, sanctification, is what it's called in theology terms. I'm sure all of you have heard that term. But let's give it a simpler term, and that's growth into Christ's likeness. That also is in this category of not being, that's something you cannot do. But as a Christian, it's something you grapple with. When you weren't a Christian, eh, you did something that violated your conscience, and eh, you could shrug it off, look at the next person and say, well, they're even worse, so I'm okay, right? But as a, as a Christian, things have now changed. You know in your heart of hearts. I, this, is, this is so significant. So when we come to Christ, we do have this new mind, the mind that agrees with God, that agrees with what's right, and even wants to do what's right. That, you know that doesn't come from flesh and blood. But you know that there's also in Ephesians that verse that says, keep renewing your mind. This is not a one-time deal. Now you have a new way of thinking. You have a new agreement with what's good. But it's a process of ongoing renewal. It's not a one-time thing. Your justification, that's a one-time thing. Some of you know in your life when that moment happened. Some of you may not know in your life when that moment happened, but you know you're justified. But here's this next phase that is a process that continues from the time you get this new mind to the time you're actually in your new what? Yes, I heard you say it. Notice we're still in the same body we were in when we gave our lives to Christ. Does your body instantly change when you, you learn something new? Does it just, when, when someone told you how to use your computer or your cell phone, did you automatically, like my little boys did, pick it up out of the box and just, I, frankly, I took so much time because as much as I knew all the steps to do to get this phone working or to get this computer working, I could not do it. It took so much practice because it wasn't embedded in my body, in my actions. So to me, this is a huge call for us to be patient with ourselves and with each other. And notice what we get to here where Paul says, he cries out, he cries out because he, he knows he's not supposed to covet, but he's, and he knows in many situations, for example, what's the right thing to do, just like you and I do. Many situations we're in, we know the right thing to do, but we don't do it. Something else comes out. 
How many times have I told myself, do not criticize your husband's driving? Do not tell him that he's supposed to be in the right lane to turn right. Don't, you know, I can tell myself that all day and all night. And once in a while, I'm able to sit there and keep my mouth shut. But most of the time, I say, honey, I'll drive. And that takes care of the issue because there's a gap. There's a gap between knowing what's good and being able to do it. So we all have to face our weakness. But at times, and he's, he's concerned about these young believers. These are young Christians. He's concerned. And we, when they get to those moments where they see, they recognize, as he did, oh, no, I can't do what I know to be right. That's when he cries out. He cries out. Do we cry out when we actually face our own weakness, our own incapacity? Notice he cries out, not, what can I do? He cries out, who can help me? Who can help me? And the word for wretched, here's another thing that may get a little confusing about this passage. We think of wretchedness. We may not have the the Greek meaning of the word in mind because part of the meaning of wretchedness is frustration. Frustration, discouragement, almost a sense of despair. Like, I can't do this. Why? And Paul is asking us not to stay there. At that moment of wretchedness, and we all, if we don't have those moments of frustration with ourselves, we're, we're uh, maybe not as committed to growth as we really want to be. And maybe we're not ready to face some of those things, but there, there need to be those moments. It's not a constant state of, oh, you know, you're not called to live in a state of, discouragement over your incapacity to be like Jesus. That is not the point of this passage. But the point of this passage is when you become aware of how far short of Jesus' loving character you fall, when you have been unloving, when you have been selfish, when you have been covetous, when you have been frustrated as can be with someone who's not treating you right or any whatever those things are when you get to that point you need to cry out who can rescue me from this and do you think you'll get an answer of course you will of course you will because we live in his love we live in his presence we live in his goodness So don't stop crying out and don't stop receiving the help. Now, this is kind of a preview. You're going to get into the beauty of the help that he provides in chapter 8. And I'm trying so hard not to go there because I want to go there because that's where you get the, ah, ah, this is how it works. This is how it works. So let me just give you three takeaway 
points. I want to give you plenty of times with time with your groups today, because honestly, if I had my way for this lesson, I would have clustered us all together in a small group and sat down and just said, okay, tell me what you struggled with when you read this chapter. Let's talk about it because that's really what you need to do today. So I hope you will all enjoy your group discussion because this is one of those chapters that needs discussion. But let me give you three important, what I think are the three most important takeaways for this, this particular lesson from Romans. There, there are three significant values, valuable lessons that come from learning and acknowledging our weakness, our incapacitation to be Christ-like in our own bodies with the help of nothing but our own bodies and willpower. So number one is our dependency. The one I was just talking about, I think I already made this point. So let me just reiterate that point. We are utterly dependent on the who that Paul cries out to. And that who will be discussed in much more depth when you get into chapter eight. Second, there is always restored hope after failure. That the who will always restore your hope. You are not done. You are not finished when you blow it when you fall short, when you're unloving, you just keep going forward because of what you'll learn in the next chapter. <laughs> A little preview again. But the third thing, and probably perhaps this is the most important thing of all, the third thing is that knowing our weakness gives us, helps us gain the humility we need toward those who are struggling. The humility we need to, to show love and to be accepting and patient with those who are struggling. Because if we live by this chapter, we'll recognize that we are in the same boat as they are. They are struggling with different things. They may have grown up or lived in an environment that did not prepare them to live the Christian life. Those of you who grew up in godly homes, you still have things to struggle with and purification and growth that needs to happen because none of you is fully like Jesus yet, or you wouldn't be here this morning. You'd be with him, okay? So... You all have that, but I want you to be thinking about those people who've been raised, and maybe you've won, who was raised in a totally ungodly environment. You became conditioned to see and hear things that didn't even trouble you. And now you, you recognize you need Christ. You give your life to him. And some of those old habits of thought and behavior are still with you. And how well do we identify with those people where they are? I met a young lady four or five days ago 
who has been an, first an atheist, then in a trans, well, then in a, a same-sex relationship, and then a pursuit of Islam because of the guilt. It's a very complicated past very complicated past and she has tattoos and things and she she has mannerisms that i i'm telling you when i observed the christians around her you can imagine the, how difficult it was and is for some of the christians in this gathering we were part of to approach embrace, communicate. I could see people kind of going a little bit, a little bit sideways instead of beelining and giving her up. Everybody hugging one another, you know, and here's, her name is Asiya. It's really A-S-Y-A, Asiya. And, and she was so hungry to be loved and accepted and approved and cared for. But I can tell people had a hard time. We all would have had probably a little bit of a challenge in just seeing through the exterior markings, the mannerisms were still quite strange, very, very thin and very tiny. And anyway, I just say that because I realized if we don't understand that we're in the same boat with Asiya, struggling to understand what it means to walk with Christ, struggling to know that we're loved and accepted, struggling to be what we want to be in him, we may miss the chance to love someone who needs the love of Jesus. So that was, to me, the biggest takeaway from this from this chapter and i hope that's the takeaway that impacts you most thoroughly as you walk with jesus as you take your frustrations to him as you celebrate growth when you see it i mean i'm learning not that my husband isn't to blame for everything that goes wrong in our home and so once in a while, when I say, honey, that was my fault. Ah, that was the spirit of God. He moved me to say and take the right attitude. And I can rejoice. I can celebrate in those moments. And if you're not married, you don't have a spouse. You have a, a, maybe a friend, a neighbor, a sister, a brother, a pet, somebody that you can practice your growth with and celebrate those steps of growth. But keep crying out. Okay, we're in it together.